Let me ask you as we uh, begin, what is uh, your most memorable wedding experience? Uh, the, the chances probably are that it is a wedding that didn't go as planned. Uh, would be your most memorable experience. The weddings where everything goes perfectly well and uh, the bride and groom are, are looking the part and exchange the vows and all of that. Uh, we set that aside very, very quickly. The ones we remember are the train wrecks. And so I remember being at a wedding uh, where we went to the reception. The, the wedding went fine. We went to the reception and the best man had apparently, from my vantage point, had had a little too much to drink. And he got up to do uh, the toast, and he began to go on and on about how he wishes he had gotten to the bride first. <laughs> and how different things had been, would have been for him if he had met the bride before his own brother had. Uh, yeah, it was awkward. Um, I remember some very, very good friends of mine telling a story about how uh, their officiant, their, their pastor, got up the day of their wedding with the stomach flu. And he tried and tried to get another pastor, another minister to take his place. And uh, he just couldn't find anybody. And so he decided to take some medicine and tough it out. And in the middle of their wedding ceremony, the pastor got sick. On the stage. <laughs> on the bride's dress. Everybody, we kind of groan, but everybody remembers that wedding. <laughs> right? There's no like, hey, do you remember? Yeah, I remember the wedding, right? Um, uh, I, I recently read uh, this, this story about a wedding gone wrong. The morning of the wedding, a very ecstatic groom uh, went with his groomsmen and his family and photographers to the bride's house to pick her up. And when he arrived at the house, he found the bride's father and her brother standing outside the house. They told uh, the groom that they decided she cannot marry him today, that he's not good enough for her, and that she's presently locked away in the house and will not be appearing at the church to marry him. Uh, the groom, his parents, all of his people pleaded with the bride's family. He called her repeatedly to no avail. She wouldn't pick up the phone. Uh, she would not see him or speak to him. Eventually, uh, the groom's parents had to go to the church and announce that the couple would not be getting married that day. Uh, but since they'd already paid for all the food and entertainment, it was the groom's parents' 40th wedding anniversary, so they decided to have a party for them instead. Um, <laughs> Right, just awkward, right? Just very, very awkward. And this parable that Deb read for us earlier a few minutes ago is about, it's a parable about a wedding that does not go well, right? And on one hand, you can imagine putting together a wedding and inviting all of these people and they begin to make excuses. So on one hand, you can understand that I've got a bunch of work to do. I need to work in the field. I need to do this. I need to do that. And, and listen, you can kind of see through that. Right? You, you get that they don't want to come, but in a polite culture, you just kind of accept the excuse and uh, all of that. So you, on one hand, you can get that, but the wedding parable actually takes it further, that he sends a servant uh, to the people to invite them to the wedding, and there's this other category of person that doesn't just make up excuses, they actually beat the servant of the king and kill him. So, so it's, a, it's a wedding that has gone very, very wrong. It's not just awkward wrong, it's immoral wrong, it's murder wrong, it's, it's terrible. And, and so the story then goes that the invitation moves beyond that and goes to anybody that they can find. He says, literally go around the streets and invite anybody that you can be fine. So what is this interesting kind of parable about? Well, 
Uh, we're going to look at a, a, a fair amount of scripture today. I'm going to have it all on the slide for you. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit academically before we get to where we are today. But uh, initially, it seems clear that this is a category of parable that you would say are parables about Israel. All right, there's four, five, six of them or so. Uh, parables about Israel and their reaction to Jesus, and specifically their rejection of Jesus at the time that he walked this earth. I've been reading a really interesting biography on the Apostle Paul by N.T. Wright, and he talks about how easy uh, this rejection of Jesus was, because for most of Israel's history, uh, God had, they were his chosen people, and God had worked through them as a nation. He established judges for them, and kings, and prophets, and at times he led them uh, through overwhelming victories, and at times he led them in bitter defeats, but the promise through Abraham was that God was going to establish a nation, and that God was going to bless the entire world through that nation, so Israel had just kind of become used to the idea that God was going to work through them as a nation. And so this thing called nationalism set in, that God is only going to work through us as a nation. So many of the Jewish people in the first century when Jesus came, they assumed that the Messiah was going to be political. He was going to be national. He was going to be like a general. And so when Jesus came and he began to talk more about the kingdom of God than he did the kingdom of Israel, when he started to say these things like, hey, we're not going to get rid of Rome, but pray for those who persecute you and, and love your enemies as you love yourself, it is just not what they expected. They expected him to be a national king. He expected him to be that, they expected him to be that way. They expected him to be a warrior, a general, a political leader. And that love your enemies just doesn't play. Pray for those who persecute you just doesn't play when that is your mindset, that your leader is going to be a national leader. And Israel couldn't move past their nationalism. They couldn't move past their expectation of a political savior. And so they rejected Jesus. And I think on this Sunday before July 4th, I think it's worth remembering. I love this country, but it is not through America that you are saved. It is not. We, we have to begin to see that Jesus didn't come to be our national political savior. He, he came to be something different than that. And there are many blessings that come from being an American. Freedom of speech, freedom in general. Salvation is not one of them. Salvation comes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. So it is good for us to pray, God bless America. But when you understand who Jesus is, your prayer becomes, God, would you bless America and would you bless the nations? It is good for us to pray that Jesus would move in our nation. But when you understand who Jesus is and what he came to be, you begin to pray a different prayer. God, would you work in this world? Um, we, we begin to pray not for a, a, a great political environment. We pray not for America to be great. We pray for his kingdom to be great. And that is a different prayer. And that, that is who Jesus came to be. And that is what he came to accomplish. And so the arc of the gospel, the arc, the arc of this story that we're studying today is that the, the gospel came to Israel first. The invitation of the wedding came to them first. It was an invitation to follow him. And Jesus, in his own words, was by and large rejected by his own nation, by his own people. But that was not the end of the invitation. The invitation moved forward to the entire world, which was the plan all along. You can actually see this in Jesus' instructions to the church in the book of Acts. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It starts with Jerusalem. 
The invitation goes to Israel first, and then it goes to the entire world, to Jews and Gentiles alike. And this is not the first time Jesus tells a story like this. Like I said, there's a category of parable that is about Israel and about their rejection of Jesus. Let me show you another one. It says, now there were some at that present, uh, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, very important question. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died in the tire of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others who were living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look at the fruit but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So Jesus refers, before he tells the parable, he refers to two stories here. One is a story where uh, Pilate had killed some men and women uh, for what he perceived to be a, a rebellious attitude toward Rome. Another had to do with the collapse of a tower. And Jesus is asking a very important question that I still get asked today. It's, do you think that these people died because there was something wrong with them? Because they were sinful. And on two occasions in this story, Jesus answers it directly with a no. He says no twice. That is not why this hardship fell upon them. This is not why difficulty fell upon them. The answer is no. This is a statement from our Savior about suffering. That suffering in this world does not happen because God's mad at us. Right? We, we live in a broken and fallen world. So that's the beginning of, of the parable. And then he transitions to make this point. That's not why bad things happen to people. But still, here's his point. Everyone needs to repent and everyone needs to turn back to God. Everyone needs to follow me. And this is directed at the Jewish men and women. Invitation went to them first, specifically the religious leaders, who at the point Jesus tells us were already plotting his death, how they were going to kill him, and it is an invitation to follow him, an invitation to life in him, an invitation to the Jesus movement. And then he tells a story about a man who's trying to grow a fig tree for three years, How long was Jesus' ministry? About three years. And no fruit is growing on the tree. And the farmer's thinking about moving on. And the truth is, when Israel rejected Jesus, it's not that the gospel wasn't available to them anymore, because it is and it was, but it's that God started to extend the invitation to the Gentiles, to us, most of us anyway. And he brought the message to them. This is a warning and a pleading to Israel. Don't reject me. Don't turn your back on me. I've come to offer you salvation. All right, here's the other parable. It says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went, to the first and said, uh, he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But then he didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? 
Well, the first they answered, and Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So he mentions these people that are not living these traditionally righteous lives. He talks about prostitutes. Uh, he talks about tax collectors who in the first century uh, were kind of known to be dishonest folk who were stealing from their own countrymen. And Jesus, you just kind of got to picture this. Jesus says to these religious leaders who had spent their life studying the scriptures, who had spent their life studying the Messiah, who had spent their life in preparation for the Messiah. And he says to these men that have been trained in the scriptures, he says, prostitutes and tax collectors are coming in ahead of you. Now think about how insulting this would be to your average pastor, minister, leader, this person that went to seminary, this person that has studied so hard. And Jesus says to them, to these religious leaders, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing the kingdom. You're missing the invitation. You're missing life. You're missing the whole thing. And the question of all of these parables, first to Israel, and then eventually we're going to see it comes to us, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you. The question of these parables is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with this man? I say that because some of these religious leaders, uh, I think they had flipped the script. The message was not, what are we going to do with Jesus? The, mess- the, the, the thought pattern in their head is, what is Jesus going to do with us? Is he going to lead us to a political revolution? Is he going to help us fight back Rome? Is he going to help us achieve more power? What will the Messiah do with us? They flipped the script. The actual script is, what will you do with Jesus? He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the Almighty. What are you going to do with him? Will you love him? Will you follow him? Will you reject him? What are you going to do with Jesus? And I think the other thing this parable demonstrates for us is sometimes the the core part of the good news is that Jesus came and invites us into his kingdom and through grace and through forgiveness, we are able to enter that kingdom. We're able to have the relationship with God we were created to have in this life and the next, but we need grace. We need forgiveness because our sin separates us from God. And here's what I think is happening in that latter story is I think tax collectors and prostitutes have an easier time seeing their need for a savior than religious folks do. I think religious folks and religious leaders, I think it's easy for them to say, I'm really not that bad, especially when I compare myself to culture, when I compare myself to others, I'm really not that bad. As a matter of fact, I'm good enough that God's actually kind of lucky to have me on his team. I think religious folks struggle with this. Prostitutes and tax collectors, thieves, they have an easier time saying, I'm messed up, I, I, I've screwed up, I need grace, I need forgiveness, and we forget that Satan wasn't cast out of heaven for prostitution or tax collection. Satan was cast out of heaven for pride. And we all need a savior. And we all need grace. And we all need Jesus. My prayer as I was at the North American Christian Convention this last week, the theme was grace, is that God would break down my pride because I'm a religious folk. Grew up in the church. My parents were saved the year I was born. Been in the church my entire life. 
And sometimes it is hard for me to see my need for grace. But I do. I am a sinner. Paul, the Apostle Paul, late in his life, said, I am the worst of all sinners. So what are you talking about, Paul? That was the year Nero burned down Rome. You're saying you're the worst of all sinners? Isn't Nero the worst of all sinners? No, Paul said, I am the worst of all sinners. I am in need of grace because he refused to compare himself to his neighbor. He refused to compare himself to the, to the government of his day. He refused to, and he just looked at himself and said, I, my sin separates me from my heavenly father. And I am in desperate need of grace. Now listen, I've been sticking very close to my notes here. Because at the time that these parables were given, they were hugely controversial, and they still are today. Because when you read these parables, you can have this thought of, wait a second, Israel was God's chosen people of the Old Testament. And when you hear these stories, it can sound like God is turning his back on Israel. He's not, but the, and I'm going to show you that in a minute, but these parables can almost make it seem like God is turning his back on Israel. And here's that concern for us today is, well, if God turned his back on his chosen people, is God someday going to turn his back on me? Right? That ought to be our concern with that. And it can appear that he's turning his back on Israel, but I don't believe that for a minute. And I want to prove it to you real quick, because I think it's important for us to realize God didn't move on from Israel. God didn't turn his back on Israel, and God's not going to turn his back on you either. And I want to show you, I want to demonstrate it with Israel, because I think it's so important for us to get this, that God still loves Israel. God still has a heart for Israel. God is still in the Israel game. And let me show you this from the book of Romans, all right? The title of this passage in your Bible and in the book of Romans is this, all Israel will be saved. Provocative, right? Let me show you this. Just me. All right, oh, that's all right. No, all right. It's my sermon, so I can, can do what I want here, right? Um, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. conceited. Israel has experiencing, is ex- experiencing a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. All right? So he's saying, in terms of the gospel, Israel's, they kind of rejected the, Jesus and they rejected the gospel. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. All right, so... What's he saying here, right? He's saying that Israel had developed this hard heart, a hardening of the heart, and as the result of their rejection of the gospel, the gospel came to Gentiles like you and me. And so we have an opportunity to be saved. We have an opportunity to receive mercy because of their rejection of the gospel. But God's not done with Israel yet. So right now, primarily, not totally, but primarily, the gospel is reaching Gentiles. It went to Israel first. Now it's with the Gentiles. Somehow this text says, somehow God is going to do a work in Israel again. 
So Paul says, through Israel's rejection and disobedience, the gospel came to the Gentiles, to us. It's moved forward. It's not moved on. It's just moved forward. We now have access to the message of grace and kindness of Jesus. And Paul is surmising that somehow the gospel is going to make a full circle back to Israel and all Israel is going to be saved. God is not done with Israel yet. His grace is not finished in Israel yet. And this is just me talking, but I'm telling you, if I started to see a movement of God's grace and an acceptance of Jesus in mass in Israel, I'd get my affairs in order. The gospel is going to come full circle. God has not turned his back on Israel. God is not done with Israel. God's grace is going to come back to Israel. And it's important for us to understand that. Because he's not going to turn his back on you either. He's not done with you either. His grace is still sufficient for you as well. But right now, we are in the age of where a lot of Gentiles are being reached for Jesus. And the truth is this. What was required of Israel way back in the first century, is required of us today. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus demands a response. So the same question that Jesus brought to Israel is the same question he would bring to you and me. And I'm going to put it back on the screen for you. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because Jesus made these statements throughout his ministry that require a response. They are these bold, definitive statements that require a response. The book of John records several of these I am statements. Let me say, show you a few of them. I'm going to show you all eight of them. All right. Uh, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus promises that in him there is this sense of spiritual satisfaction, that our souls crave this spiritual thing called God. Right? Our soul craves it, and in Jesus, it's like bread, and you never go hungry again. It's like water that never, you'll never be thirsty again. In Jesus, we find like spiritual satisfaction. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the promise of light, right? And man, we've never needed light like we've needed it today. And, 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 and in this era of, of human history is this world is so dark, Jesus promises light. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The promise of salvation. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the promise of sacrifice that Jesus promises to sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This is the promise of eternal life. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the promise of relationship with God that you were created to have. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. These statements require us to do something. These are not statements that you can hear and be like, ho-hum. Interesting things Jesus said, ah, whatever. 
No, these statements require that we do something with Jesus. They just do. No one comes to the Father but through me. That requires a response. Through me, you can have life, true life. That requires a response. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That requires a response. So God is inviting you to his wedding ceremony. He is inviting us to life He's inviting us to salvation. He's inviting us to hope, joy, and peace. He's inviting you into his kingdom. But like all weddings, all right, we're going to go back to the very first story at the beginning of the sermon. Like all weddings, our RSVP is required. You know, when I talk, I do quite a bit of pre-marriage counseling. Um, the RSVP thing is really tough for brides, right? Um, because you're coming up to the wedding and just nobody RSVPs anymore. Very few people do anymore. And uh, so you're, you're coming up and people just don't respond. And so you're kind of forced to make this phone call or send an email if you're the bride or, or the groom or, or whatever. And the phone call usually goes, yeah, so this is like the most important day of my life. And, you know, I was just wondering if you were planning to come or if you had something better to do, you know. <laughs> And they'll make up excuses. Oh, I got to work that day. It's like three months away. How could you possibly know that? Or, you know, I got to, you know, do my nails or whatever. But um, an RSVP is required. A a response is required. And in the original uh, text, the final invitation goes out. Remember, the first invitation goes out. There's a rejection of of the wedding invitation. Uh, A second invitation actually goes out, and they double down. They kill the servant. And then finally, let me put this on the screen for you in Matthew 22. The wedding banquet is ready, but those I I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. How I love this. I love this because here's what it means. You are invited. Look at me. You are invited. You are invited to know God. You are invited to share in his banquet table. You are invited to receive his grace. You are invited to receive his life. You are invited into his promise of eternal life. And you may be tempted to think, God would never want me at his wedding party. Not after what I've done. Did you see what it said? Go into the streets and invite the bad as well as the good. Every single person is invited to the party. You're invited to life in his kingdom. You're invited to know God. You're invited to be his people. And this is the age that we are in. We are in right now, I like to call this the age of grace. Right now as Christians, we need to be all about inviting people to the wedding. It astounds me how many churches are all about themselves and all about their desires and all about I want it done my way or this way or that way. It it astounds me how many many churches are that way. Uh, just was uh, having a conversation with a good friend of mine in ministry uh, who is absolutely getting the snot beat out of him uh, because his church put in chairs and took out pews. Um, And my heart really went out for him, went, went out to him because this was easy for us. Because 
you're, you're about other people and you, you, you've just been really, really graceful through this whole change. But my, this buddy of mine is getting the snap beat out of him. Because it is a church that has lost sight that we are in the age of grace. And that we need to remove whatever barrier we can and we need to invite whoever we can find because God wants everybody invited. And they've just, his church has just lost sight of that. And this is where the story kind of takes an interesting turn, I think. Um, because the wedding hall is filled and the king notices, right? The king's walking through the wedding. Everybody's been invited, the good and the bad, right? Come on in, hear the story of grace, hear the story of life. You are invited to the wedding, but the king is walking around and he notices that someone is not dressed the right way, right? And uh, in the first century, the way this would work is the king would provide clothes. He'd invite a whole bunch of people, and then however the king wanted people to, to dress at his wedding banquet, uh, however the king demanded that people be dressed at the wedding banquet, he would provide the clothes for that. It was an act of grace. It was an act of kindness. And so if you were invited to the wedding, he would provide you the clothes, right? He would provide you the clothes. You just needed to put them on. You needed to be dressed the right way. Now let me pause here. One of the worst sermons <laughs> I have ever heard in my life was more than 20 years ago. And I still remember a 20-year-old sermon. One of the worst sermons I've ever heard in my life was somebody using this text to teach how we are to dress for church. All right? <laughs> Not anywhere close to the point of this parable, right? And I still, I, I still remember it in a chapel service I was in, like it was in, uh, like, like it was yesterday. A, a guy using this story to describe how we are to dress for the Lord, not the point of the text. You know what God requires? You know what clothes he requires? God requires holiness. God requires righteousness. God requires perfection. These are the spiritual clothes God requires. And here's the problem, in case you're keep, kind of keeping score here. The problem is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when God invites you to the wedding, he requires you to dress in holiness. You're not holy. God requires you to dress in perfection. You're not perfect. God requires you to dress uh, in, in righteousness, and you and I are not righteous. We are all sinners. We don't have the right clothes to wear to the wedding. So you see the problem here. God has invited every person, the good and the bad, to come to his wedding banquet. He's invited everyone to come. And he says, all I want is for you to wear the right clothes, righteousness, holiness, and perfection, and we don't have the right clothes. And here is the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is that God, in his grace, gave us Jesus. And Jesus did wear the right clothes. Jesus was perfectly holy. He was perfectly righteous. He lived a perfect life. There was no sin in Jesus. And the apostle Paul said it perfectly in Romans 13 when he says this. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of grace, that you are invited to the wedding. You don't have the right clothes, but Jesus does. Jesus does. And in Jesus, God, when God sees us, when you put your faith in Jesus, God, when he sees us, he sees the perfection, holiness, and righteousness of Jesus so that you can be dressed the right way for the banquet. I heard this described one time, and I've shared this with you a bunch of times, but this is the great exchange. 
That when Jesus was on the cross, I give Jesus all of my sin and he gives me all of his righteousness. And so when I am clothed in Christ, when I follow him, when I worship him, when I do my best to, uh, to, to make him my Lord, when I am clothed in Christ and God sees me, when God walks through the banquet hall, when God sees me, he sees the perfection of Jesus. Am I perfect? <laughs> I've been your pastor for 12 years. You know I'm not. But when God sees me, he sees the perfection of Jesus. When God sees me, when I'm clothed in Christ, when he sees me, he sees the holiness of Jesus. Am I holy? <laughs> right? You know better. Now, sometimes I try to do my best, but we all fail. When God sees me, he sees the perfection of Jesus. And this is the gospel of grace. That you are invited to the wedding hall. You are invited to life. You are invited to salvation. But you don't have the right clothes to wear. But Jesus does. And so we put our faith in him. And Jesus begins to change us from the inside out. He changes our desires. He changes our decisions. As we put our faith in him, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can have the power to change. We become more holy and righteous. It's true. But it's all grace. He forgives us by his grace. He changes us by his grace. He empowers us by his grace. It's all grace. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Jesus. And I want to pray that we would, in this room, understand grace and understand being clothed in your son, Jesus. And uh, um, Lord, I just pray in this room that we would, we would clothe ourselves in him every day. And, and we do that through relationship. We through that, do that by making him Lord. We do that by putting our faith in him. We, we, we do that through relationship. And then as we're walking through the banquet hall of the great wedding feast, you see not my imperfection, you see the perfection of Christ. You see not my unholiness, you see his holiness. You don't see my poor decision-making, you see his righteousness. And it happens through a relationship with Jesus. Not a relationship of equals because we are not equals. But a relationship where he is my Lord, he is my savior, and I am his follower, I am his sheep. I wanna pray for anyone in this room that hasn't made that decision yet. I wanna pray that their spirit would be moved by this parable and they, they would understand that the invitation is open for them to know you. The invitation is open that to, for them to have life in you. But we need Jesus. And so I pray they'd put, a, put their hope and their trust in you. They'd make you their Lord and that they would respond after this service. And we could talk a little bit more about Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.